Keep praying for the children's ministry in the church, please. There's just a, a lot going on with a lot of kids and a lot of things happening, and it's pretty exciting to see the way the, the Lord is growing this. And so so pray for the nurseries, pray for the Sunday schools, the youth group, the young adult group, just some really neat things. The fact that kids want to be in church and we get the opportunity to to tell them more and more about Jesus Christ is is a wonderful gift. So thank you. We're in Acts chapter 14 this morning, if you want to turn there. Uh, Paul and Barnabas are continuing to take more ground on the church's first missionary journey. They're, they're traveling quite great distances between places, and uh, God has called them to be a light to the Gentiles and to take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth, and that's what they're doing. They've had some really amazing highs and also some really discouraging lows. And if you've ever been involved in ministry or in preaching the gospel to people, you know that that's kind of par for the course. You get both. Chapter 13 ends by telling us that Paul and Barnabas were driven out of the towns they were trying to reach. But rather than be discouraged, look at how the chapter ends. In, in verse 51, it says, But they shook the dust from their feet and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So even though they're, they're run out of town, it says they were filled with joy. And more importantly, they were filled with the Holy Spirit who enables us to keep on keeping on and, and really where that joy comes from. So in verse 14, we're going to cover this over the next few weeks. We're going to see how the gospel message divides people. It's a message that will be rejected by some, but it's a message that will also be received by some and believed upon and lives change because of it. So I'm going to read the first seven verses of Acts 14, and then we'll, we'll get into it. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. So that's our text. Uh, verse 1 tells us that Paul and Barnabas traveled to a place called Iconium. And I've got to get this out of the way right from the start, because every time I say that word or read that word, I chuckle to myself inside because it sounds like Iocane, uh, which, which, of course, is a, a powder that is odorless, tasteless, dissolves instantly in liquid, and is among the more de deadly poisons known to man. Uh, if you don't understand that reference, we can't be friends. Uh, and you need to go watch The Princess Bride later this week. But it sounds really similar. Iocane, Iconium, I've got that out of the way. Now we move on. Upon arriving into the town of Iconium, they went first to the Jewish synagogue. That was their, their habit. They would always go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Verse 1 tells us that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And, and other verses talk about this powerful proclamation of the gospel that took place. They preached with such power that people, multitudes of people, bowed before the Lord right then and there and believed. And I just, you know, it's like, oh, can we have that, Lord? Can we, can we have some of that too? 
it reminds me of the stories of George Whitfield. If, you, if you've never heard of George Whitfield, this guy was um, something else. He lived in the 1700s. He was a contemporary of Charles and John Wesley. Uh, it's said that after struggling to achieve salvation through his own efforts, he read a book at the age of 20 called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, and it completely wrecked him. His big takeaway from the book was this. It is Christ's dying and not our doing that gives the sinner acceptance with God. That's worth repeating. It is Christ's dying and not our doing that gives the sinner acceptance with God. After discovering this amazing grace, he was compelled to go out and tell as many people as he could this message of grace that saves sinners. He ended up preaching. It's like a typo. You look at it twice and think, this can't be right. He ended up preaching some 18,000 sermons. And, and some estimate he, that he reached around 10 million people. That's nuts. And he only, he only pastored until the age of 55 when he died and, and basically preached himself to death. He once said, I would rather wear out than rust out. And that's what he did. <laughs> and, and, and he wasn't just mailing it in. I'm thinking, okay, 18,000 sermons, you know, you're going to be repetitive and you're going to, you know, they were powerful sermons. They, they were effective sermons, so much so that the Church of England, which was corrupt at that time, banned him from their pulpits. They said, we don't want this guy to come in and preach because of the effect it has on the souls of man. They were watching these radical transformations of these people, and, and they, they shut him out of the pulpit. Do you suppose that that stopped God even for a second? No, <laughs> he, not even a little. He started open-air preaching. He's like, oh, I can't go inside and preach to the pulpit? All right, I'll go outside and I'll preach to whoever will hear me. So he started open-air preaching and started to reach more people than he would have inside the church. It's said that the coal miners that would come, you know, they would finish their, their day on the job, come out of the coal mines, and they would hear Whitfield preaching, and you would begin to see white gullies kind of form down their faces from the tears that would wash the coal off of their faces from hearing this guy preach of a Savior who loved them. And, and I, you just think about, wow, Lord, that kind of powerful preaching is what we want to see happen. But we know it wasn't George Whitfield. It was the Holy Spirit that was doing that through this man. And I would just ask you guys, pray for the pulpits at the door. There's many of us that come up here and preach. Pray that God's word is powerfully proclaimed and that his spirit makes it effective in the lives of the people that hear it. Because this is a good message, guys. This is the message that saves souls. It's the same power that we see working mightily in Paul and Barnabas in chapter one. But we know that when God is working mightily, we can expect opposition. And so right after verse one, we read in verse two, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. It wasn't enough for them to reject the message. They wanted everyone to reject the message. So they, they did this thing where they, poisoned them and stirred, stirred them up. And this is a very unusual alliance. Jews don't normally partner up with Gentiles unless there's a really good reason. And apparently shutting down the message of Jesus Christ was a good enough reason for them to partner with these Gentile dogs, as they would call them. Stirring them up and poisoning their minds. This is, by the way, the tactic that the enemy has used since the very beginning. We see in the garden that he stirred up Adam and Eve and he poisoned their minds. He introduced to them doubt and something that we refer to today as FOMO. 
That's a real thing. And it's fear of missing out. It's actually in the dictionary now, which is weird. It's an acronym, but this is a real thing. And and I kind of laughed at it when I first looked at it, but this is the definition. Anxiety than an than excuse me anxiety that an exciting or interesting event may currently be happening elsewhere, often aroused by posts seen on social media websites. Some of you have FOMO right now, and, and you don't even know it. You know, we walk around. It's just funny to watch people walking around. You know, with their phones in front of their faces. I wonder how history will record this era of people just running into things and. We don't, you know, there's, there's this idea that we might be missing out on something. But isn't that the, the lie that the, the devil told Adam and Eve? Did God really say, you know, there might be something better out there. You might be missing out on something. God might be keeping you from some fun. And we, we believe this lie that the world has something to offer that you don't want to come to Christ. You don't want to believe in God because you're going to miss out on something better. And that's just such a lie. I've been there and done that. I don't want the shirt. It, it, it was horrible. There's nothing about what the world has to offer that I want. I used to have a poisoned mind. I believed wrong things about myself, about God, and about my future. And the antidote for a poisoned mind is truth. When God's truth flooded into my soul, the lights came on. And I, I, I believed, I saw the lie. I saw I saw this thing. God's word told me a very different story than what I was believing. And I no longer have a fear of missing out on what the world has to offer. I have a fear of missing out on what heaven has to offer. And that's my hope. That's what I look forward to. So we we see this this opposition happening again with the apostles. And so you would expect verse 3 to say something like, so they packed up their belongings and they headed out to a place where things would be a little easier and where everybody would accept their message with grateful hearts. That is not what verse 3 says. It says there was opposition, so they remained a long time. (laughs) And it's like, huh? That sounds weird, doesn't it? That's not how I handle opposition. It's like, wow, how can I dig in further and stay in this for a while? But that's what they did. It said they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They didn't run away. They dug in more. They didn't compromise the message because it wasn't being well received. They kept preaching the truth about man's need for salvation. And and it seems like they even got more bold in it. Verse 3 also tells us that God gave them the ability to perform signs and wonders, which gave their message more credibility. Uh, The presence of signs and wonders doesn't save people, but it will uh, help to authenticate the message. And that's what it was doing. Uh, If the Lord chooses to use signs and wonders in our midst today to authenticate his message and to bring more people in, we are all for it. Uh, But it doesn't seem to happen quite like what we see here. And so I started thinking, is there another thing that God uses that bears witness about the truth of his word and the truth of his grace? And and I think that there is. Uh, At the core team meeting the other night, a young lady uh, by the way, we do, we're doing this core team meetings to prepare for the Lapine group. And there was about 30 of us there that night getting ready, which is really exciting. But this young lady spoke up and reminded us of something else the Lord uses to help authenticate his message. And that is in the way that we love one another. We were talking about why so many young people are leaving the church. And how do we, what do we do to, to get them to stay? And she pointed out that often the older generation, which I think she means people, other older than me, but it might've been me. She didn't say 
But the older generation often tries to relate to young people by trying to give them wisdom, trying to tell them how to live their lives. In our minds, that's the best way to try to relate to them, you know. And she said, it's nice that people want to help us navigate our way, but sometimes that can come across as judgmental and disapproving. And, and a lot of times the younger people don't want to come to church because they, they feel that way perhaps. And, and she encourages us to try to simply form real, genuine, loving relationships with young people. And, and it sounds so simple, but it's, it's, it's not what we often do. Love them. Doesn't mean you tell them that everything's okay that they're doing or anything like that. You know, we still will get a chance to tell these young whippersnappers, you know, <laughs> how to live their lives. But it's going to come from a place of relationship and love and not from a place of disapproval or judgment. And there's a big difference in those things. So as I, as I thought about the way the Lord told his disciples to live in John 13, 34 and 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's a very self-sacrificing love. That's a love that gives everything away for the other person. He says, that's the way you're to love one another. And by this, everybody's going to know that you're my followers, that you're my disciples in the way that you love one another. They're going to see it and they're going to go, wow, that's not, that's not of, that's not of man. That's of God. It's going to stand out. Like if you've ever been sleeping in a really dark room and somebody flips the light on and it's almost like that, what is, what's going on? That's how it's going to stand out in the world because the world is not loving each other. They're not kind. They're not, it's, it's an ugly place. And so when we love each other within these walls and begin to love each other or love people outside of these walls, it's a powerful testimony, a powerful tool that will help authenticate the message of the gospel. So Lord, signs and wonders are okay for us. I mean, if you want to bring them and they're real and they're really happening, that'd be cool. I'd like to see some of those. And we do see the Lord work miracles in our midst and, and answer prayer. But, but if those don't come, love is a powerful testimony that God uses in, in, in the lives of the church. So, um, but as we see in verse 4, even with the most convincing proofs, some people still refuse to believe. They were doing these amazing signs and wonders, but verse 4 says, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by the, the, both Gentiles and Jews, here you see them coming together again with a common purpose to get rid of these guys. They came together with the rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. When they learned of it, they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyocania. I say that different every time because I don't know. Lyce, yeah, you got it. And to the surrounding country. I looked it up and it was weird that they wanted to say Lou something, but just say it with confidence is, is the important part. The important part is it says they left those towns, whatever their names are, and they continued to preach the gospel. I love that. In his commentary on Acts, Tony Merida points this out. He says, if the gospel message shared is not both uniting and dividing, you can be sure that the true gospel isn't being preached. And it's true. And apparently they were doing a great job of preaching the gospel because it seemed to divide the town in half, which is what you would expect it to do. And again, first it was threats, you know, vocal threats, and then it began to turn violent. So the apostles headed out to the next dark spot on the map to continue to preach the good news of Christ. I like what Tony Meredith says here also. He says, in this act of relocating, we should notice the combination of prudence and perseverance. These missionaries were brave, but not stupid. In fleeing danger, they lived to preach another day. And sometimes the best way to make the gospel known may be remaining. 
and at other times it may be relocating. For such matters, one must seek the Father who promises to give his children wisdom when they ask. That's smart. If you want a more simplified way to say that, there's another man that said it this way. You've got to know when to hold them, (laughs) know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You'll remember that. When you're talking to somebody and you're, you're trying to tell them about the Lord, you know, you, you have an idea sometimes if the Spirit's working and, and if He's not. And when you know that there's nothing happening, it's okay to, to move on. But, but be aware that the Spirit is working all around us and we want to partner with God in any way that He'll use us. And, and so uh, pay attention and, and be, be smart. These guys were smart. You know, they realized, okay, this is, this is going to be bad. We'll go somewhere else. And they, they pick the right time. And the Spirit will lead us and guide us in those things. Okay, so that's the, the narrative. I want to focus on three things from it. They are these. The first one is the message of grace liberates the sinner. The second one is the message of grace infuriates the self-righteous. And the last one is the message of grace compels the messengers. So the first one is that the message of grace liberates the sinner. Verse 3 tells us that they spoke boldly for the Lord or, or for the Lord about the word of grace. Grace is something we talk a lot about in, in church and as Christians, but it's simply God's kindness to those who don't deserve it. He has no reason to forgive us or to show us love, but he decides to anyway. That's what grace is, unmerited love, unmerited favor. The gospel is a powerful message of grace that people just have a really hard time wrapping their minds around. And I don't know if you, I guess David talked about this last week. I wasn't here and I didn't listen to his message, so I get a pass. If this is repetitive, I'm sorry, but it's so good. It it fits so well that I'm going to talk about it. I don't know if you followed the news story about this female police officer who was recently convicted of murdering a man, killing a man. She entered the wrong apartment and thought it was hers, and she shot an innocent man named Botham John. And she was convicted, and uh, she thought that she was in her own apartment. It's, you know, anyway, after the sentencing, her younger brother, I'm sorry, her, his younger brother, he's an 18-year-old guy named Brant John, took the stand to speak to this woman that had taken his brother's life. If you saw any of the news accounts of it, it was very chopped up. If you if you want to really... Uh, Watch the version of the uncut version of what he said, and I'm going I'm to tell you what it said now. He starts out by acknowledging how much she has taken from their family. But then he says something incredible. He said, I hope you go to God with all the guilt and the bad things you may have done in the past. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it again. I'm speaking for myself, not on behalf of my family, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say, I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he looks at the judge and says, 
I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? And then there's a little pause, and he implores her again, please? And then the two embrace in front of the courtroom. You know, they're, they're weeping, and they're holding each other, and, and they're talking to each other. I don't know what they're saying, but I'm just thinking, that is grace. This is grace on display for all of us to see, and people didn't know what to do with it. It's just not something we, we, we see or understand or can even wrap our minds around. How can, how can this be possible? How can there be such undeserved kindness and undeserved love and forgiveness? But this is what God offers to us. We stand in his courtroom, guilty as charged. And Jesus looks at us and says, I don't want you to rot and die. I love you. And I want you to live. And then you can picture him looking over to Father and saying, can I take their place, please? Please? Can I suffer the punishment for their crime so that they can go free? The message of grace liberates the sinner. And I love this. You know how Paul would always start his messages with grace and peace? Because one follows the other. To see this woman go from knowing what she'd done, this guilt that she had, to all of a sudden knowing that her sins had been forgiven or potentially forgiven by him, but also perhaps from God, she experienced grace. And the next thing that came was peace. It's a peace that makes no sense. So grace liberates the sinner, but at the same time, we see that the message of grace also infuriates the self-righteous. And you think, how can the message of grace be upsetting to somebody? Who, who would get mad at this? But in the account of, of Brant John giving this woman grace, people, a lot of people got really mad because he offered her grace. And they got even more mad when the judge came down and gave this woman her personal Bible, which is crazy to think about. Her neck's on the line a little bit too. So if you think about it, pray for this family that lost so much. Pray for this young man that's that stood out and offered grace. Pray for the woman right now who's contemplating her eternity and contemplating her need for Christ. And pray for this judge who really, you know, you're not supposed to hand out your personal Bible to people who've just been convicted for murder. But wow, that's cool. People got mad because like I said before, grace doesn't make sense to people. They don't get it. And that's why the message of the gospel can be so divisive sometimes. It's, it's that idea of like, oh, you're just going to let them off the hook? They don't have to pay for what they did. And, and I get this. There, there's part of me that understands this because God, I think, has built something into each one of us that we want to see justice done. It's part of the, you know, the, the imprint of God, you know, his, 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 um, his Imago Dei, the image that he print, stamps on his creation, that we have this thing in us that wants to see justice served. We don't want to see people get in way with wrong. The problem is we're not consistent with that ideology. Because we don't want to see other people get away with wrong. But when we do wrong, guess what we want? Grace, right? I see some idiot on the parkway. I'm sorry, but that's what I think of. Who's, you know, I'm in the left lane doing 50. And they're pushing me and pushing me. And finally I get a chance to come over and, and they blow by me. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, please be a cop up ahead. I want them. I want justice now. Right? I bring them down. You know, that you, this thing comes up in you that you're like, yes, until the day when you're driving along and you look over and see a cop in the bushes 
right? And you look down at your speedometer and you're like, I'm doing 15 miles over the speed limit. Oops. What do I want then? Justice? <laughs> nope. No, I want, I want some grace because I know I'm guilty. A self-righteous person sees things through the lens of works-based righteousness. In their minds, they're not guilty. So they don't need grace. And they see somebody who needs grace and, and they say, well, that's too easy. But a guilty person will be thrilled to hear, I'm going to let you off today with a warning. <laughs> I think that's what they say. I've, I've never been in that spot. <laughs> that's what I imagine they might say. As a sinner, I know that I have no hope apart from God's grace. And that's why the gospel is such good news. I love the, the line from this song, because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. A person who has truly experienced God's grace should be a person who freely offers grace to others. And they should also be a person who can't wait to tell others about it. Okay, that brings us to the last thing. The message of grace compels the messengers. This section ends with the words, they continued to preach the gospel. After all the opposition, after everything that, that they were you know, dealing with, they continued to preach the gospel. And I don't know if you've noticed, but trouble uh, had a way of following Paul and Barnabas wherever they went, um, from town to town, but it didn't ever deter them from their mission. I kind of like that. Can't preach in this town? That's all right. We'll go to the next town. Reject the message? That's okay. Our job is just to throw the seeds out there. God can make them grow. He can do that even after we leave. They can sit dormant for a long time and, and then sprout. So that's all right. Threaten us with violence? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger, right? I'm singing that today. I'm thinking, yeah. So what can stand against us? Nothing. Close the pulpit? No problem. We'll preach outside. Take away our tax-exempt status. That's in the news right now. So God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's not going to stop the message of the gospel. Is it an inconvenience? Yeah. Is it a problem for God? No. I love the resolve we see in these faithful Christians. And I think to myself, what drove them to persevere even at the risk of their own lives? Like Chad said, what's the riskiest thing you've done for the gospel? And I'm thinking some people are thinking, well, you know, in a restaurant sometimes when there's people looking, I'll pray before a meal. You know, is that, I mean, that's how I feel sometimes. It's like, that might be, you know, one of the things I would think of. And it's like, well, that's not very risky. <laughs> These guys were risking everything. What drove them to be able to do this? And I love this Spurgeon quote. He says, the grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. And what he's saying there is that grace will affect things. When a person's experienced the grace of God, when it's completely flooded their soul and they get it, it will change things. You know, Whitfield didn't go out and preach every day because he had to. It wasn't out of obligation or guilt. Remember his conclusion that he came to? It is Christ's dying and not our doing that gives sinner, the sinner acceptance with God. So he wasn't going out there and preaching because he had to. We, we nag you guys a lot to go out and share your faith with other people. But it's not because we're trying to give you homework or, or you know, you guys walk in here already burdened down. And the last thing we want to do is like, well, here's a couple of bricks for you to haul around for the rest of the week. That's not what we're asking from you. We want you to, if you've experienced God's grace, tell others about it. 
Tell, tell people like that woman who'd never heard grace before, tell her that it's available to her. Tell her that Christ died for sinners so that we can have a relationship with him. That's what motivated these guys. They knew that there were other people out there that needed to hear a message of grace and, and they wanted to free those people. So they went out to talk to them. I am so, so thankful for people that persisted in telling me the message of the gospel and reminding me that I wasn't okay. And I'm even more thankful for a God who didn't leave me alone, but loved me enough to hunt me down and and just, you know, save my soul. I thought about a goofy analogy, but I don't think it's very good, so I'm going to skip it. <laughs> How's that? I don't need to tell you that, but I did, so no. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer. Father, we are grateful so much for uh, this grace that, that each one of us has been offered uh, even today, Lord, if somebody doesn't know you today, they heard about a grace that's available to them. Um, Lord, we all stand guilty before you. We all stand in this spot of of need. And I, I pray, Lord, that we would be honest about that. I thank you that you didn't leave us in that state, but that you sent your son. And you didn't need to do that, Lord. We acknowledge that you sending your son is such a gift to us, that he went to the cross in our place, that he took the punishment that we deserved that his body was broken and his blood was shed on the cross so that we could have life. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that they would fully place their trust in who Jesus is and what he's done for their soul. And that they would bow before him today, even right now in their heart, and confess that he is Lord. Thank you, Father, for saving sinners. Thank you for a place where the message of hope goes out each week, Lord. We need the message of grace continually to know that it is finished, that it's not our doing, but that it's his dying that, that gave us peace with you. So Lord, help us to walk in that peace. Help us to take that message to other people. And thank you again for all that you do um, in and through this place. In Christ's name, amen.